passage in Genesis chapter 18. I think there is here maybe one of the great compliments that God ever paid a human being. Genesis chapter 18. And we will uh, look beginning in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Let me tell you, if God could say that about me as a father, I would count that the highest praise. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Our world is in a mess. Aren't you glad I came all this way to tell you that? You probably hadn't heard that. It is a mess, and it's getting worse. And so who should we see about that? And where is the problem to be solved? Where is it to be answered? Well, the government's the answer of all things, isn't it? We just need some more government programs. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are people in our government, different levels of government, who are good people and trying the best they can. But I think most of us in this audience are well aware of the fact that government is not the problem, and in many cases is not the solution, I'm sorry. In many cases it is the problem. There was a famous politician in my lifetime who was famous for saying that the most terrifying nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And I think through the years we have seen uh, efforts by the government to try to fix the family and fix the moral situation of our have made it far worse. So I don't think that, but I don't think that really is the ultimate source of the problem. Well, we need to do something about the schools. Well, the schools have let us down in many cases. There are some excellent people who work in schools, public schools. Um, you know, we, we chose the homeschool route with our children, and I'm not sorry we did. Uh, but having said that, you know, people look at you if you homeschool your children and they say, well, you just don't care about public schools. Oh, no, I do. Because my children have got to live in the world with the same product here of the public schools. I care about what's going on in public schools. And I've known some good people uh, who worked in the public schools. Uh, I'm thinking about a lady that some in this audience know uh, who worked in elementary education over in Mississippi. And uh, in talking with her about her long career there, she's retired now. But um, she worked in a, a community that was a uh, poor side of town. And she said it, it wasn't just that we were trying to teach these kids the alphabet. Uh, we had to feed them. Had to clothe them. They'd come to school in rags. Uh, they went and bought clothes for these children out of their own pocket. And, um, you know, that what she told me was we found out that if we put clothes on them to wear at school, if we send them home, we never see them again. So what they'd have to do is bring the kid in from, from home and wash him up best they could, put the clothes on them, get them something to eat, <laughs> then educate them during the day and then put their other clothes back on, send them home so they'd be ready for the next day. I'm saying that to say I know that there are a lot of good people who do their best working in education. They have a lot of things against them. Uh, and on a national level, uh, you find a lot of nonsense that's taught, a lot of evil things that are taught uh, through the public school system. But I don't think that's the problem. That's a problem, but that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies in our society, in the home. And I think most everybody recognizes that. That the real problems of our society come back to every time the home. But now here's the point I want to make tonight. Who's in charge of the home? If we take it one step further, who do we see about that problem? Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. It's not difficult to find the answer to that in the Bible, is it? First Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, And ye fathers, 
provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's talking here about nurturing, raising children. He talks about raising them in the nurture. That's a great word. My dear uh, Mr. Thayer in his lexicon has a paragraph on this word, paideia, and he says it's the whole training and education of children which relates to the cultivation of the mind and morals, employs for this purpose now commands and admonition, now reproof uh, and punishment. It's the whole uh, gamut of, of, of raising a child. And he adds to that word admonition. Admonition is calling attention to things that need to be changed. And notice what he said. He said that the work of nurturing a child, of raising the child, of training the child, fathers do this. Nothing I'm saying today is intended to diminish the role of the mother. We're going to talk about that, Lord willing, tomorrow night. But I want you to notice these passages speak to fathers. And by the way, in this same context, Back in the fifth chapter of, of Ephesians. And in verse 22, we find the, the husband leading the family. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That word submit's an interesting word too. Upotasso means, tasso is a word, means to arrange. Like you arrange a, 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 a vase of flowers. And you place some things here and some things here. Everything in its place. And upo is that, uh, that prefix that means literally under. We borrow that, you know, we talk about a hypodermic needle. We mean a, a, a needle that goes under the dermis, under the skin. Upotasso means to, to rank or to place or position under. And so God has an order in the family. It's not an order of, in which he loves people and he loves this one less than this one, but there is a place and a position in the family as God has designed it. And what he said is, he said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands of the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Is it hard for us to understand that the church has a head? Why is it difficult for anybody that believes the Bible to understand that the family has a head? That, that is anathema in this world, but this world does not recognize what really is involved in headship, do they? And maybe sometimes uh, brethren don't recognize it. Let me continue reading here. Verse 23 again. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Here's the idea of subjection, submission. The husband is the head, and the wife submitting to her husband as Christ does to the church. And so this is the license for husbands just to have their way and abuse their wife. No, it's sure not. No, that's not at all what it's in. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ the church. When we understand and get it through our head, I'm not ashamed a bit of these verses. I don't want you to be ashamed of them. I'm sure you, I hope you're not. I know the world hates them, but they don't understand what's being called for here. There is to be leadership in the family, but it's not a leadership of license. I get to have my way. We do what I want to do all the time. <clears throat> That's not the point. It's really a responsibility to lead my family in such a way that it's best for my wife and for my children, for their spiritual good as well as for their physical good, to give ourselves and sacrifice ourselves as Christ for the church. Anybody who reads this verse with understanding would know that uh, in, in one sense, he's not doing men any favors. He's laying upon us a heavy burden. And that burden may be abused, but the abuse does not 
eliminate God's plan and how it's best. And that's why in our world it's so fouled up in his thinking. We talk about toxic masculinity. There's nothing toxic about being masculine. Now people may abuse their role. But masculinity is a God-given thing, and it has a place. And by the way, as we uh, may talk about a little bit tomorrow night, it makes no more sense to me to tell a woman that what she ought to do is to ape men in every way that she can uh, and, uh, and call that feminism. That's also another ridiculous lie. But the Bible places upon men a responsibility in their household. Turn with me to another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is not a passage that deals primarily with the home. This is a passage, you remember 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to the brethren there and in part remembering together with them uh, his uh, initial contact with them and his teaching among them. And he said in verse 11 of, of 1 Thessalonians 2, he said, you know how that we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. He uses three words here that are powerful to me. He says, we exhorted you and comforted you and charged you. Exhort is the word parakaleo. Now, I don't know. I have a smattering of knowledge about Greek, and I realize that there's a limited use for that. But that's another great word. Para is, is parallel. It's the idea of beside. And, and the verb kaleo means to call. So there's a great image that's drawn by this word, to call to one side. You see the idea of someone motioning to a person and they call to put their arm around them. They may call them to fuss at them or they may call them to console them. But that's the picture of someone being called to the side. He says, we exhorted and comforted you. This word comforted is a, is a mouthful, but it's another powerful image. Um, it's, uh, it's the word paromutheomai. <laughs> and if you, if you were to look at that word and you were to look at the middle of that word, you'd see that word mutho, which is, is a Greek word from which we get our word myth. And the imagery here is of someone who uh, is uh, uh, beside another and they're told a, a, a story, a myth. Uh, you know, sometimes with your children, uh, they may scrape their knee or they may get their feelings hurt or they may need to have a heart-to-heart -heart lesson and you, and you sit down with them and you talk to them and you tell them a story, <laughs> a story about something that happened in your life or a story about someone else, and you teach them. And that's the imagery of this word. And so to call to one side and to call them and tell them a story that will help them. And then finally the word there uh, is, is exhorted, uh, or I'm sorry, is the word charged. Uh, and, and the word here is the word uh, martyrio. That sounds a little familiar to us. Martyrio is the Greek word from which we use, get the English word martyr. Uh, when we use the word martyr, um, I was talking to a group of young people back home the other day, and I said, how many of you know what a martyr is? And they didn't know what the word martyr meant. It shocked me a little bit. <laughs> so I may be taking things for granted, but I think many of us in this audience have heard that word many times, a martyr. And what we mean by that is someone who dies for the cause or a cause. They are a martyr for the cause. But really that's not what the Greek word means. That's an extension of it maybe. But the Greek word means witness. It's not primarily dying for the cause. It's more the testimony that might cause the persecution, right? And so here's this idea of uh, a child. Paul said, this is the way we, we worked with you. Uh, like a child uh, that would be called to the side, that would be informed and encouraged, that would be witnessed to. But notice again what he says. He didn't say that our entrance among you was as mothers who do those things, although mothers do a good bit of that. He said it was like a father. How much nurturing, how much cherishing, 
How much exhorting and comforting and charging are we doing as fathers? One more passage. Uh, this time in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the qualities necessary to be an elder. We find this statement. He's got to be one. This is 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4. That rules well his own house. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. He's talking about fathers there. Fathers, rule your house. And he goes on to add, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? When you're looking for elders, you're looking for a man who rules his own house well. But the truth is, that's the ambition of every father and every husband. And the point that we're making tonight is that job is woefully neglected. Being a father is a biologic, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. Fathering a child is a biological uh, function that most men of a certain age possess, fathering a child. But being a father is a spiritual skill that very few people put into practice. The, the job of fatherhood has been dreadfully neglected. The statistics are overwhelming. Some of them differ a bit from one to the other. Uh, one uh, study that I read, uh, not, this is not by a group of preachers. This is a study by those who study sociology and such things, said that 15 million children in the U.S. live without a father. 15 million. That's three times higher than it was in 1960, by the way. And in some places, some concentrated areas, it's, it's far worse than that. Uh, this same article, uh, which was entitled, by the way, Fathers Disappear from Households Across America, noted that in one southeast Washington, D.C. neighborhood, one in ten children lives with both parents. One in ten lives with both parents. And of those situations, 84%, the one parent was the mother. The neglected job of fathers. And, and study after study after study make the point that when a father is absent from the lives of their children, that the, the number of cases of depression, of suicide among those children, of eating disorders, of early sexual activity, of addiction problems, of the difficulty of holding on to loving relationships, goes up dramatically. Uh, you go to death row and you go uh, to prison and you see people there for uh, put away for a long time for crimes and just one after another after another. One fellow told me that he had been working with people on death row for 15 years and I think he said it was about 95, over 90%. He said either had a terrible relationship or no relationship at all with their father. It has its effect. And it's not just with men. It's not just with boys. You, know, you can't overemphasize the power of a relationship between a father and his daughter. I had um, uh, come across a, a book a few years ago uh, that um, uh, was entitled Father to Daughter, Lessons on Raising a Girl. And this book consists of a number of just bullet points about things that fathers need to remember and know about dealing with their, with their daughter. But the whole point of the book is the power of that relationship in a girl's life. It meant a lot to me because we had three girls. And some of the points are a little bit, I guess, facetious. Uh, things that fathers need to remember as they try to have a relationship with their daughter, one of them was be prepared to watch Walt Disney movies with her some 200 times each. And that may be uh, true. Another said, remember when you're dealing with a 13-year-old girl, for all intents and purposes, you're dealing with a fruitcake, which I thought might be a little harsh. That's not always true. But then again, it's not always not true. Um, but, there were other things that I think were much more to the point. Never forget that supportive fathers produce daughters with high esteem. You cannot imagine the, the void in the life 
of a, a little girl who grows up with her father walking away. You know, fathers are not there for different reasons. Some fathers die early, other things. But when, when fathers just, you know, have children and let somebody else raise them, have no interest in being involved in that daughter's life, you can't imagine how that affects until you talk to people, women who've been through that. Um, another point that he makes, make sure she can reach you 24 hours a day. Remember that she needs a strong self-image before she becomes an awkward teen, and a father's love can make all the difference. Talks about the need for the father to get to know her friends. Middle school, he says, marks the zenith of peer influence. Um, here's another point, he says. Fathers can produce um, um, uh, a powerful influence on their, their daughters. Let her see by the way you treat your wife the way a man is supposed to treat a woman. Has a powerful influence on young girls. Teach her that if she acts stupid to attract boys, that she will attract stupid boys. That's a lesson that fathers can teach in a special way. Explain to her that they're dangerous boys as well as honorable ones and how to tell the difference. Um, he just throws this in as well. If a boy pulls up and honks for her, go out and have words with him and explain to him that your daughter answers to a doorbell. It means a lot that a father sticks up for his daughter like that. Wait up for her. Knowing dad will be greeting her at the door has a very positive effect on her decision-making process. Tell her the three keys to wisdom. He says, not believing all you hear, not spending all you have, and not sleeping all you want. This will be difficult for her until she graduates from college. And he says, finally, tell her that she is the daughter you always dreamed about. And so on. It's a powerful statement. Books like that have their value. But the point is, the father being there makes such a difference. And the father's absence makes such a difference. We're talking about neglect. And there are fathers sometimes who are in the home and they're neglectful. It's not that they've walked off. It's not just the deadbeat dads we're talking about. We're talking about fathers who are there, but they're not there. And they have this twisted idea that my job is to uh, bring the money in and then let and mom's got the rest. And they don't even know what's going on. And, and I wonder sometimes if, if that's my mentality. What do I think? How would that work on my job? How would that work if I were uh, at some company and somebody had placed me in charge of a particular department and there was a big mess up in that department and the guy who hired me came in and he said, uh, hey, what, what, what's happened here? And my answer would be, I don't even know. I don't know what's going on around here. I don't know. You'd call that guy unemployed. But what do you expect when one day the Lord looks at us as fathers and says to us, I gave you a family. What is this mess that you've given back to me? Well, I didn't even know what was going on. The power and the responsibility of fathers uh, is what we want to emphasize tonight. Again, I'm not diminishing the role of the mother. And let me just add this. I'm not trying to pick old wounds. You know, we can't go back in time. And there might, there's a time where we raise our children and then we just do the best we can to influence them after they're gone. And I'm not trying to, to, to cause uh, any useless pain here. What I'm really primarily doing is talking to these young folks. And I want you to think about what it means to be a father and about what God demands of you. Some of you have young children. Some of you are going to be fathers one day. And I hope we have a very clear view of the responsibility that God places upon fathers. I'll tell you this. It's the most humbling job I've ever tried to do. And I hope that... Um, we can approach it with the proper spirit. Let me suggest to you, the, the, the heart of the lesson tonight comes to three points. I think there are three shortcuts that men take in being a father that lead to failure. And there are three that I want to share with you. Number one, the shortcut of giving words instead of examples. Now, let me be clear. I believe in words. I believe that there is a place for teaching, <laughs> for telling, for showing. 
that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, I don't think we read this verse yesterday. Uh, I'd be surprised if we don't touch on it at least one more time before the week's over. But we all remember this verse when Moses speaking to Israel before they made their way over into the land of Canaan said, here is something you must remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and might. And these words that I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them, he says, for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. I believe there's an important service that fathers do in teaching their children, taking occasion, not just sitting them down after a long work day in a formal class, but fathers who take time to talk to their children about spiritual things. And so there's a baptism here. And that's a great opportunity for us to explain to our children what baptism is about. Or someone has to be marked as a member here, as being unfaithful, as walking with Satan. And there's a, an opportunity there to teach. And we're driving down the highway, we see the billboard, and it's advertising whiskey or whatever it is advertising. And we talk to our children about how deceptive it is and about how things are packaged as something good that really are evil and hurtful to them and so on. But we need words and we need to talk with our children. It's one of the lessons in the Old Testament that's emphasized. Look with me in Psalm 78. In the 78th Psalm, this is one of the great uh, historical Psalms. The psalmist reminds parents of their job, of their duty. Give, O ear, this is Psalm 78, my people to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. We have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. You know, that's what we need. We need fathers to understand hard things and explain them to their children. That ought to be a source they can go to. They ought to have those words. We'll not hide them from their children. Show unto the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children should be, that should be born, who should rise and declare them to their children that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The idea of one generation teaching another, teaching another. We tried this uh, yesterday to emphasize the point. It is the great lesson that God teaches us. Uh, the contrast between Lot's family uh, and the family of Eunice was Lot, though he was a righteous man, did not impart his values to his children. It was Sodom that educated his children. Where on the other hand, though Eunice had many disadvantages, it was fate that those children, that Timothy in particular, got from her. So impart knowledge to your children. But that's not a true substitute for living it, is it? It's one thing to talk about values. It's another thing to show them. I doubt seriously if anybody in this audience, if I were to ask you, do you want your children to grow up to be Christians? That they would say no. Uh, but you know, we've got to obey the gospel. I, my first work, uh, there was a fella, he sat right over there, and he was there more regular than the members were in some cases, but he never obeyed the gospel. But he came to me one day and he was concerned about his daughter obeying the gospel. How in the world can you influence your children to obey the gospel if you don't do that? You know, we've got to set the example. It can't be just words. It's got to be more than that. 
You want your children to be faithful in attendance or not? Do we want them just to be half-hearted in their attendance? Well, then don't send your kids. Bring them and show them how important it is. This is, uh, I guess, more the mom than the dad. I was in a meeting in, uh, in Birmingham one time, and a uh, mother came up to me after the service. She said, I need your help with something. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, um, I want you to tell my husband that my husband that our daughter does not have to miss her graduation this Friday uh, for the meeting. And I said, well, uh, you may not want my help with that one because I think your husband's right about that. And I, and I understand, you know, that there's, a, there's something maybe that might be enjoyed in that. But I believe that, that there are clear priorities. Now, maybe we could have scheduled this better. Maybe your husband could have spoken up in a business meeting and said, hey, guys, we've got a conflict and we have this meeting next week. But here we are and this is our meeting. And I said, I believe your daughter will be a lot better off if she puts the kingdom first and she'll appreciate that more as years go on if she's thinking right. And she didn't like that answer, but I still tell the same thing today. You know, when it comes to uh, uh, putting the kingdom first, attendance and things like that, I'll share this story with you quickly. I hope it's not too personal. Again, this is a mom, I guess, and not a dad. When my father passed away, um, he died on a Friday, and the way things worked out, the, the uh, viewing, as we call it down there, was on uh, Sunday afternoon, four to, or five to seven, four to seven, something like that. And there were relatives from out of town that had come in. We were at the funeral home there, and uh, the service was, I think, at six o'clock. And about 15, 20 to six, my mother got up, and she was going to services. And uh, people just didn't understand that. Some, her relative didn't. They weren't members of the church. They said, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to church. One of my aunts, I remember telling her, saying, well, it's okay. You go ahead. I'll stay with him. And her response to that was, he said, stay with him. He's not here. If he were here, I'd stay with him. But I'm going to church. And so we got up. We went to church. And I've never forgotten that. That was a powerful lesson to me. And people think this, that's extreme. But I'm saying, you know, when you show your children in moments like that, that there are things that are important and things that are more important, that will speak more than any words you say and I say. They're going to look for what we do. Um, you want your children to be good Bible students? Of course we do. Who doesn't want that? Well, then show them. Show them. My father was not a Bible scholar. I'm not either. But he was a Bible reader. My dad obeyed the gospel as a young man. He spent a number of years out of duty. And he came back. And when he came back, he came back with a hunger to know more about God's will. So this is what he would do. My dad was an early riser. And by the time I got up, he'd already been up for some time. And I can remember to this day, my dad died June 4th, 82. But I can remember to this day, as a kid growing up, you go back in his bedroom, and there was an old yellow chair in the corner with one of those old lamps, you know, standing lamps. And he'd be sitting there reading his Bible. My dad, when he read something, would, would just ruin the book. He liked to underline everything. And so he underlined everything. And he had his own business. And so by the time he got ready for work, he'd throw that Bible in a sack and some one-volume copy of uh, Matthew Henry or some such thing and throw that in a sack and he'd go to work and he'd spend his time there when he wasn't working, studying and reading his Bible. I don't remember my dad ever saying to me, son, you need to read your Bible more. But I remember that. And that spoke to me. I still remember that. Now, you may not have that kind of memory. I realize there are folks here that may have had a very bad experience in their home life, and I, I'm, I'm sorry that that's true. But that's not really what we're talking about tonight. I'm asking, what kind of memory will your children have of you in years to come? Will they know a father who was in love with the Word of God and hungry to know more about it? It's not just the words I speak. It's going to be the things that I do. You want your children to be prayerful? Let them see you pray. 
Teach them how to pray and show them about prayer. You want your children to grow up, your sons to be good husbands, show them a good husband. Show your daughters what she ought to expect from a husband. I tell you, it's just awful that in so many homes in our country, and I, I fear even in some homes of Christians, of those who would be Christians, screaming and carrying on down the hallway, yelling at each other, angry about things. It's not enough to tell them. We've got to show them. And every day that is uh, put forward. Want our children to control our, their tongue? Let, me, let them see me control mine and so on. Well, more could be said about that. But let me talk about a second point quickly. Another, I think, shortcut that is taken in so many times has to do with substituting money instead of things. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, things instead of time. That's what I'm trying to say. Substitute things instead of time. Um, we uh, can be uh, uh, good providers, and we ought to be. The passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 comes to mind that uh, if, if, uh, if we don't provide for our own, especially of our own house, we've denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. That's in the context of the church providing funds. And there are some things that the church ought not to be responsible for, that the individual ought to take care of. And he makes the point that if a man will not provide for his own, his own house, he's worse than an unbeliever. And there are a lot of folks who do not take care of their families as they ought to. I can remember a, a fellow that I met years ago uh, of a different generation uh, he wasn't one of these, as we said, deadbeat fathers who has a child, just walks off, let somebody else pay for the child. That goes on all too often. He, he never left the, fam the home, but he was one of these fellows who thought, you know, I go to work, it's my money. If you want something, you need to find a way to pay for it. Um, I remember the sister, and she was a godly woman, and she would go and clean houses for people down the street when her children were little, take the children with her, just to have money to, to put clothes on their back or sometimes to feed them. He had plenty of money in his pocket, but he'd go out to eat. And he'd, this is my money. What a, what a foolish idea that is. Somebody doesn't know as, a, as a, uh, a father and a provider that what you make is our money, their money. It belonged as much to them as it did to him, but he was that kind of, of foolish thinking. But you know, if we provide well materially for our family, that's not enough, is it? And fathers may work long hours, but it's not enough for, to just to give our children things and money. What they need is us. I saw this uh, illustration somewhere. There was a survey that was done several years ago in which uh, it was asked of American fathers, how much time does the average American father spend in conversation with his children? Now, understand what I'm asking here, what the survey's asking. How much time, actual time, do American fathers spend talking with their children? There are 168 hours in a week. I don't know what I expected, but this is what the survey answered. It said the average father in America spends 90 seconds a week talking to his children. When I first heard that, I thought, that cannot be so. And then I thought, well, I'm not sure. Maybe that is so. If their in interaction goes something like this, can I borrow the car? No. Uh, click. That didn't take long, did it? Go get a haircut. Mm, click. Um. Can I go out? No. Click. If that's all that's involved, then what we have is a very sad circumstance. Uh, God calls on us not just to be providers, but to be fathers. <laughs> and if I think I'm too busy, then I need to get a clue. In uh, the book of uh, Mark chapter 10, there's a great story there about the Lord. How that on one occasion, there were young children brought to him. This is uh, Mark 10 and verse, 18, verse 13, I'm sorry. 
They brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. I guess they thought Jesus is too busy for this kind of thing. You need to take these children somewhere else. But Jesus saw it and he was much displeased and he said, Suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And the point is, Jesus, I suppose, was the most busy person that's ever been on the earth. If the Lord was not too busy for children, what excuse do I have for being too busy for my own children? I'm tired. I've got a lot going on. Well, I need to call my schedule in because my children have to be a priority. It has such an impact. There's a great story that I, maybe some of you have heard. We talk about the Adams family. That brings to mind some old TV show. But the, the Adams family in the 19th and 18th century in America was the John Adams family. John Adams was the first vice president of the United States, the second president of the United States. His uh, son, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. His son um, was the ambassador for um, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, to Great Britain. It was a famous family, well-connected. Charles Francis Adams was that guy's name. He had seven sons, Charles Francis Adams did. And one of them was named Henry Brooks Adams. He was the fourth of seven, so he's right about in the middle. That's a tough place to be. It's a famous story. You know, one thing that, uh, that the elder Adams was, he was a diarist. And he taught his children to keep a diary, to write down events. It would teach you many good lessons. So uh, he kept a diary and his son kept a diary. And many years after they both passed, I think, uh, someone noticed an interesting thing. On a particular day in the spring, there was a diary entry in, his, in the son's diary that went something like this. Went fishing today with my father. The greatest day of my life. On that same day, his father had made this note in his diary. Went fishing with my son. Day wasted. Now, let's give him a little room here. Maybe what he meant was he didn't catch any fish. But it would be sad if he thought that was a day wasted. You know, how many of us whose fathers died fairly young, or when we were young anyway, cherish that day we spent with, that time we went with? You, you get this much time to get those moments in. <laughs> don't waste them. And don't think because I'm a good provider financially that that means that I can neglect these things. That would be a great tragedy and a loss for everybody. Let me mention one other thing. I believe that it's a great mistake to offer abuse instead of discipline. And again, let me say, I believe in discipline. Shall we read these verses? Do we have a minute to read them? Let me go back to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15 and look at some familiar wisdom literature concerning rearing children and corrective discipline of children. Proverbs 22:15 reads, Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Here's something that I learned in having our children that I, I think really was an eye-opener for me. I probably should have known it before. Children are different. <laughs> you know, the old nature versus nurture argument. Um, and Certainly, as a Bible reader, I believe in nurture. I believe that God says we can shape our children. Yes, and I believe that's true. But nature also plays a part, and every parent in here knows that's so. Uh, we used to say uh, in the family, when our children were little, I got one that wakes up laughing and one that wakes up crying. And that's the way it was. They're all great. But they're just as different as they can be. Well, of course they are. They're people. And people are different. Twins are different. Each one is an individual. And you have to recognize that to be so. And what that means in reference to our point is this, that there are some that are more pliable and there are some that are more stubborn. James Dobson, he was a Protestant, written a lot on the family, 
wrote a book years ago called The, the Strong-Willed Child, he called it. He describes in some detail a strong-willed child. And he makes the point, you know, sometimes parents might have one or two uh, less strong-willed children and think they're geniuses as parents when they really just got, got were fortunate. But if you ever had a strong-willed child, then you understand that. You understand the difference. And that's from the start. And I'll cut to the chase. You know what he says of the answer to a strong-willed child? A stronger-willed parent. That's it. And that's what we've got to make up our mind to do. And sometimes people say, well, you know, spanking no good. It won't work. Uh, or it's not necessary. I, I, I believe corporal punishment has a place for every child. <laughs> I don't think there'd been a child made that whose corpus didn't be punished to some extent. Some more than others. Foolishness is bound, and here is an instrument that will help us to to straighten our children's thinking out and help them see and understand what they need to know. Let me look at the 23rd chapter of Proverbs. Proverbs 23 and verse 12 reads, Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. Withhold not correction from the child. If thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod, and save his soul from hell. Um, you know, there are those who are dead set against the idea of, uh, of spanking children. Oh, it'll do terrible things to them. Here's a book uh, written by a woman named Dorothy Briggs called Your Child's Self-Esteem. It's a book published in 1970. been a while ago, right during that time when America decided that what had worked for 6,000 years, we need to throw out and start over with a new morality and a new way of approaching the family and a new way of approaching children. And so you have this uh, genius product here, um, uh, which includes uh, um, chapters like The Safety of Non-Judgment and The Safety of Unique Growing. And she has some uh, very negative things to say about uh, corporal punishment including these words. When children are young, spanking is a familiar device to show who's boss. It seems effective because it usually produces immediate results. Doesn't sound bad to me. Every spanking fills a child with negative feelings that may be translated into further misbehavior. Whether the resulting anger is turned outward or inward, the fact remains the child has feelings about being spanked. Spanking does not teach inner conviction. It teaches fear and deviousness and lying and aggression. No matter how we slice it, spanking is a physical assault of a bigger person on a smaller one. My, it makes you wonder whether this woman has ever spent five minutes with a child. You know, I heard an old preacher when I was a kid do, he used this illustration. He raised his leg up like this and he went, Then he asked the question. He made the point, rather. He said, you know, um, I, that stung a little bit. I didn't do any serious damage to my leg, though. Do you really think that using that kind of force on your child's backside when they won't listen to what you say will really damage them any? What it'll do is it will teach them that no means no. And that if you don't listen to the parents that there are going to be worse consequences. So the text says, the Bible says, there's a place for punishment that will be, make it so that the child understands it's better to obey than not to obey, to teach your children the word no. I had a great piece of advice from... Uh, a fellow, Brother Blue, in fact, who it was that, that uh, helped my wife and I so much. When our children were little, I'd ask him questions like, you know, when do you start with spanking? And uh, he said, you, you start with uh, a mild form of it when children are able to understand what the word no means. And that's pretty early. You know, a child, you'll tell the child, don't touch the light socket. You know? 
And they understand what you're saying, and so they, they withdraw their hand. You say, no. And then they'll look at you, and then what will they do next? They'll put their hand right back over there again. And you pop their hand, no. And they can understand at a young age, you know, children are smart. Uh, and it's, it's a shame that parents sometimes, in reference to spanking, have you ever seen a, a parent spank a child and the child didn't know they were being spanked? <laughs> that is, that's pitiful. But being able to get the attention of your children is an important part of our teaching them the ropes. Brother Blue used to talk about voice control. He used to say, you don't have control over your children until you have voice control over your children. You know, if your child... If you call your child and they start running the other direction as fast as they can, and maybe because your legs are longer, you can outrun them and grab them. You don't have control over your children. You may have caught them. But when you have control over your children, it's when you tell them, come here, and they come. But they usually learn that because they have learned that it's a lot better to come than it is to go the other way. And that's where corrective discipline comes in. It's an essential part of this picture. Uh, some of you guys, in reading these books about psychology, uh, I, I remember reading a, a little poem written by a guy named Vance uh, Havner, uh, which uh, sort of lampooned this idea of letting the world teach us how to raise our children. And it goes something like this. Junior bit the meter man, and Junior kicked the cook. Well, he's just antisocial now, according to the book. And Junior smashed the clock and lamp, and Junior hacked the tree. Destructive trends are all explained in chapters 2 and 3. And Junior threw his milk at mom, and Junior screamed for more. Notes on self-assertiveness are found in chapter 4. And Junior tossed his socks and shoes out into the rain. Aggression, well, that's normal. Disregard the stain. And Junior got in Grandpa's room, tore up his fishing line. Well, that's to gain attention, chapters 8 and 9. But Grandpa seized a slipper and yanked Junior across his knee. But Grandpa hadn't read a book since 1933. <laughs> I'm with Grandpa. And I think that, that parents who are wise recognize uh, what the Proverbs teach. Look at chapter 19 of Proverbs in verse 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Here's another good piece of advice that I got from Brother Blue. Uh, he told me one time, he said, you know, I didn't spank my children until they cried. He said, I spanked them until they stopped crying. Now, if you knew Brother Blue, you'd understand what he meant by that. That might sound terrible to some people. His children turned out pretty well. <laughs> he was an abusive man. But what he meant was this. He said, it's a mistake that parents make that your child is, uh, is rebellious. They know what to do. You've told them what to do. And they just don't want to do it. They're going to get in your face and scream in your face and so you take them and you explain to them and you spank them. And then they scream at your face some more. But what you do is you do this. I've told you don't do that. And the child yells at you and you go. <sniffs> and they scream at you for another 20 minutes. And then you say, well, I spank him, and I just don't know what, it just doesn't work. We need to look at this situation again. Um, the point he made was, you know, when you spank a child, it's going to hurt, and they may cry for a little bit. But then they need to dry up, and they need to take the punishment. We're not spanking them to the point where we're going to break a bone. What we're doing is we're letting them know you're not in charge. This is a, a war of wills, and I've got to win this for the child's sake. They've got to learn to submit. And if we apply these principles, and the point that he made was, I didn't let my child scream at me when I spanked them. I let them know they're going to get another one if they didn't dry up. If we win these fights, we won't have to have them when they're 8, 10, 12, 15, 18. Too late then to spank children. So he says, let not your soul spare for their crying. Don't feel so sorry for them that you fail to do the thing that they need. And that leads us to the passage in Proverbs 13, verse 24. We all remember 
which is he that spares the rod hates his son. He that loves him chastens him at times. The job of the parent is to alter the will of their children so that they recognize the role of submission. I think children are much happier. You see the child in Walmart who's melting down in the middle of the aisle and the parents won't do anything about it. You think that's a happy child? They may get their way, but they're miserable. What a child needs is they need barriers. They need to know where the limits are. And we as parents need to give that to our children. If we don't, frankly, it's because it's too hard on us. We're not putting their needs before our own. I believe that to be true. But let me add this point, and finally we'll close with this. That while we intend to break, if you will, the, the will of a child, and that will can be as strong as iron, we do not ever want to break their spirit. And that can be quite delicate indeed. I think that's where the passage comes in in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. In talking with the responsibility of, uh, concerning the responsibility of fathers, we find fathers provoke not your children to anger, lest they should be discouraged. There is a way in which we can deal with children that is not corrective and not loving. It's abusive and it's demeaning, screaming at children, name-calling children, uh, sarcastically ridiculing children. Uh, those kinds of things wound. Uh, that's not discipline in God's eyes. That's abuse. It can go further than that. And, and I know and you know there are some horrifying cases in our world of not only verbal abuse, but physical abuse. None of that is justified. None of that could ever be justified. Uh, mothers who burn their children with cigarettes or blind their children or break bones of their fathers who do the same, kill their children. That has nothing to do with discipline. Discipline is training. And that's just merely abuse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's not talking about the home here. But I think he does make a clear distinction about what real discipline is all about. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. What is real discipline about? It's about treating our children and teaching our children, restraining our children in such a way that they will not be condemned with the world. That's what God does with us. He never disciplines us to harm us. He disciplines us that we might be able to be saved. And may we have that kind of love for our children. So as parents, let us be aware and let us be involved. Let's be fair with our children as well. Uh, let's make sure that we uh, know the difference between authority and tyranny. We've been talking about fathers being a disciplinarian, and I believe that's a good thing. But there's a large difference between a father who holds the respect of his children and a father who uh, is uh, so scary that his children uh, cower in the corner when he walks in the room. That's a sorry excuse for discipline. It's not discipline at all. It's a substitution for it. Parents that cannot admit their mistakes. Um, Another question that I ask as a young parent, I, I realize now what a stupid question it was. But I asked one time this question, I said of an older, wiser parent, I said, you know, I'm supposed to be an authority figure with my children. Uh, when I'm wrong or I make a mistake, should I admit it? And the answer he gave was, well, yeah, you, you might as well, they know it anyway. Good point. As parents, let's be fair with our children. But let's love them enough to teach them the right way. And above all things, let's show them the right way with our lives and our example. You want to save the world? You're frustrated by the way the world's going? What can you do about that? Well, there's a lot of things we can't do. I'll tell you one thing you can do. You can raise your children to be what they ought to be. 
That's the best way you can help this world today. And I hope you and I will all take that to heart. And as grandparents, to try to do the best we can to help and encourage our children the right way in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Appreciate your kind attention. Please get out. Uh, uh, your, well, those of you who have a songbook might get it out. And let's prepare to sing tonight a song of encouragement. If you're here as one who desires to obey the gospel, why not tonight? Come forward, make the good confession and repentance, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. If you're here as a child of God, if you have some need to ask for the prayers of the saints, why not let that be known right now as we stand and sing, will you please come?